You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 45. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we have another installment of our ongoing series, From Field Biologist to Filmmaker, in which I share lessons learned through my transition from working as a field biologist to a full-time filmmaker. This is our fifth installment in this how-to filmmaking series, and for this episode, I've selected what most people likely view as the most important component of a wildlife documentary, which is the wildlife footage. If you're making a film about a species of wildlife, the foundation of your story will likely revolve around the footage that you're able to capture of that animal. Some wildlife docs are based wholly around the wildlife footage and use this footage to tell the story about what's happening in the world of that particular species. For other films, the wildlife footage may just be a way of giving viewers a sense of place to show them what animals are present in a certain type of ecosystem. Either way, you need a strategy for capturing this footage. Lots of big-budget wildlife docs play up the difficulties endured by the wildlife videographers whose job it is to capture the breathtaking footage that is seen in the programs. Sometimes these difficulties associated with actually capturing the wildlife footage become a central component to the story itself. This is not a storytelling strategy that I've ever used in any of my films, but it's important to keep, keep an eye on the industry and the types of stories that are being told in the world of wildlife filmmaking. This podcast episode is not for those who are working on million-dollar budget BBC wildlife programs. It's for those of you who are interested in just getting your feet wet and learning a bit about what it takes to start capturing powerful wildlife imagery on a budget. The truth is that capturing really amazing footage of wildlife does not have to be extremely difficult. If you're just interested in getting started and learning how to get the best footage possible, a good place to start is at a bird feeder. This will give you the camera experience necessary to capture beautiful shots before you get out in the field on a critical shoot. So the first step towards getting this practice in is to either set up a bird feeder or find someone you know who has one set up already. It's important to note that the longer a bird feeder has been up, the more birds you're actually going to see at that feeder. You can't just set up a feeder and expect birds to be there the next day. You have to give the birds time to discover this new food source and make the visit a part of their routine. If you're setting up your first bird feeder, it's important to keep a few things in mind. First of all, think about where you'll want to be positioned to capture images of those birds. Positioning the feeder next to a window is probably a good idea. <laughs> you also need to think about close by trees, shrubs, and other natural perching for the birds. Birds will be more likely to come into your feeder if there is good natural perching close by. This natural perching will also allow you to capture images of birds that don't have that man-made feeder in the frame. There are lots of good resources out there with advice for finding the best possible location to set up your bird feeder. So you have your subjects coming in close where they are easy to view. Now you just need to know how to capture these amazing images of them. For this, we need to take a quick moment to talk about equipment. The most important piece of equipment that you'll need for capturing wildlife footage is your tripod. Although lenses are important, the tripod is without a doubt your single most important piece of equipment for shooting wildlife. These shots need to be stable. Shaky wildlife footage is going to be completely unusable in most situations. I'd recommend buying a nice sturdy tripod with a fluid head and a leveling ball. 
you can get yourself one of these without breaking the bank for around 200 bucks. You should be able to get a nice, sturdy, lightweight tripod that will work with just about any camera that you might use, which is most likely going to be a DSLR these days. Check out the show notes page, and I'll include a link to that tripod that I use. The next most important piece of equipment is your lens. I'm not going to get too in-depth on camera equipment here. To hear a discussion about uh, camera equipment and how to decide on what video camera to buy um, and all of those purchasing decisions, you should check out um, Eyes on Conservation episode 17, which is our shooting guide um, episode of from field biologist to filmmaker. Although you can certainly shoot nice wildlife footage with the built-in zoom lens on a small digital video camera, here I'll be assuming that you're shooting with an interchangeable lens camera. There are lots of things to consider when looking at telephoto lenses for capturing wildlife footage. Two of the most crucial factors to consider are your budget and the lens mount that you're working with. These two components will limit your search quite a bit. If you have a limitless budget, your options are wide open and will depend on the specific situation that you're working with on your documentary project. Canon lenses are the industry standard these days, and you can spend tens of thousands of dollars on Canon telephoto lenses. If you're looking for a good all-around telephoto lens and you have some money to spend, I would recommend Canon's 100 to 400 millimeter um, ISL zoom lens. This is a really nice zoom range to work with, and the lens is extremely sharp throughout the zoom range. You could also consider renting a lens like this if you have a limited budget um, from a site like lensrentals.com. Of course, you could spend a lot more on the telephoto lens. If you want a fixed aperture zoom, which means that your maximum aperture opening remains consistent throughout the zoom range, um, unlike the Canon zoom that I just recommended, which is a variable aperture zoom, then you're going to get a higher quality piece of glass, but you're going to pay for it. Something to keep in mind as you make this consideration and decide how much money you want to spend on glass is this. It's a whole lot easier to get away with inexpensive glass when you're shooting video than it is with still photography. Still photographers often shoot with their aperture wide open all the time. They do this to maximize their shutter speed. If you're shooting still images of birds, you want to have the fastest shutter speed possible so that you can capture interesting behavior and maybe even in-flight shots without the image appearing blurry. If you can get your shutter speed really high, you can capture crisp, focused images of birds even when they're moving very fast. This is the same strategy that sports sports photographers use when getting action shots. When shooting with this really high shutter speed, however, it becomes extremely important to be able to open up your aperture as wide as possible to bring in more light to compensate for the short exposure time that results from the fast shutter speed. Inexpensive lenses will also often have soft focus when the aperture is open as wide as possible. So for someone shooting in these conditions, it's extremely important to have more uh, to have that more expensive lens that can capture crisp focus with a wide open aperture. Take a look at Canon's 300mm f2.8 lens. There's no zoom, so why would it be so expensive? It's because you can open that aperture up much wider than you could with a standard 300mm telephoto, and you can still capture really crisp focus images with that aperture wide open. When shooting video, however, you should always keep your shutter speed at twice the frame rate. So if you're shooting at 30 frames per second, or 29.97, your shutter speed should remain at 60. 
this relationship between frame rate and shutter speed can be a little confusing. Um, so I'll provide just a brief explanation here. Um, frame rate refers to the number of individual frames that make up each second of video, whereas the shutter speed denotes the amount of time that each individual frame is exposed. Although the rule of thumb is to keep your shutter speed at double the frame rate, there are some circumstances in which you might want to adjust this. A, high, uh, a higher shutter speed result, result in sharper imagery, but the motion will appear a bit jittery, whereas a lower shutter speed will re result in blurrier images in the frame, but the motion will appear more smooth. Regardless, when shooting video, you generally will not be shooting at the very high shutter speeds that many still photographers prefer to shoot at when capturing wildlife images. Therefore, it is unnecessary, unless you are dealing with really low-light conditions, that you'll need to shoot with your aperture wide open. So if you have a telephoto lens that is a bit soft when the aperture is wide open, it doesn't matter so much because you can close up that aperture to a level that gives you that sharp focus that you're looking for. I shoot much of my wildlife footage with an old Nikon 300mm fixed f4.5 lens. This lens was cutting-edge technology when it was released back in the 70s, uh, but for still photography, it simply doesn't live up to the current competition. It's a bit soft and difficult to focus when the aperture is wide open at f4.5, um, but if I close it down to f8, I can get really nice sharp images when shooting video. Another thing to note about telephoto lens selection is the type of lens mount that you're using. These days, it's pretty easy to find inexpensive lens mount adapters for just about any mount system you can think of, including old discontinued mount systems for old film cameras. This opens up a wide range of lens options. I discussed some of the options that this opens up for video shooters in episode 17 of the podcast. Of course, most of these lens adapters won't have electrical connections to your camera, which means that aperture and focus will have to be controlled manually. But auto, autofocus systems for shooting video on DSLRs remain very clunky, so most people shooting video on DSLR systems are using manual focus anyways. The most limiting factor when considering buying an older telephoto lens is not the manual controls, but simply the dramatic advances in lens technology that we've seen over the recent decades. A new Canon 300mm f4 lens is going to be significantly sharper than my 1970s era Canon 300mm f4.5, simply because the technology available for building the lens elements has improved dramatically over time. That's not to say that you should avoid these old lenses. Many of them are very nice and still hold up to the newer competition. You just have to know what you're buying and understand the limitations. If you do some scrounging on Craigslist, you'll see lots of older telephoto lenses designed for SLR cameras for sale at very cheap prices. Lots of these telephoto zooms were built back in the 70s and 80s, and especially the third-party brands are notorious for their soft focus. This is not to say that there's not a use for lenses like this in your kit, but older telephoto zooms are generally not ideal for wildlife, uh, wildlife videography. There are exceptions to this rule, of course, always read the lens reviews. But if you're going to buy an older telephoto lens, you generally are better off with a fixed focal length lens, like that Nikon 300mm uh, f4.5 of mine that I mentioned. Of course, many of the same issues regarding soft focus with older lenses remain an issue for newer telephoto zooms as well. But for the same reasons, these issues are a whole lot less important for shooting video than they are for capturing still images. 
My co-director on our documentary, Bluebird Man, Neil Paparaki, shot the majority of the Bluebird footage that's in that film on a very inexpensive 70 to 300 millimeter variable aperture telephoto zoom lens. He found that the lens was a bit soft when extended all the way out to 300 millimeters, so he shot most of that footage at around 250 millimeters. We've gotten numerous positive feedback uh, on the quality of the bird footage in that film, which I think demonstrates that you really can get beautiful footage with relatively inexpensive equipment. Of course, a skilled operator is key to making this work, regardless of the quality of your lens and other equipment. Spending time in your backyard trying to get nice shots of birds coming into that feeder is a great way to build up that experience in a comfortable setting. The first thing I do is pay attention to the animals. Where do the birds generally perch? Is there a pattern? Does one particular bird always land in one particular spot before taking flight to the feeder? If you can preempt the spot where a bird will land, you can fix your camera on that spot and simply wait. The easiest type of wildlife shots that you can get are those are the ones where you don't move the camera at all. You just leave it fixed in one spot and let the animal pass through your frame. You won't have to worry about following your animal subject for a shot like this, which makes it a bit easier, uh, but you will have to have a good sense of the behavior that, that of that animal that you're following. Shots like this where the camera does not move are nice to have, and this is a good thing to practice. Shots with movement where you're following your animal subject with the camera to keep it in the frame can be more tricky, especially if you're following songbirds in your backyard. This is part of why songbirds are good practice subjects. Um, they flit all about through t a tree and make lots of quick, short flights, making it extremely difficult to follow them with your camera, let alone keep the movement smooth. But this is extremely important practice to get. If you're a birder or someone who spends time watching wildlife, this challenge will be quite familiar to you. It isn't always easy to find a bird in the frame of your binoculars when you're tracking that bird through the woods, and finding, then following that bird in your ca camera frame adds a new element to that challenge. A lot of the skills that you may have developed while bird watching or doing field biology type work will be extremely useful in developing these new skills with your camera. Of course, one of the keys to being successful here is constant readiness. Your exposure settings should be adjusted and ready to capture the shot that you want. You may also want to preemptively start recording if you think a target animal is coming your way or about to fly into your frame. This is essentially the true challenge faced by many wildlife videographers. The ability to wait in one spot for long periods of time while remaining alert and ready to capture that shot at any moment can be extremely challenging. Many wildlife videographers have stories about sitting in small blinds for hours or days on end just waiting for an animal to pop into view. This is where experience as a field biologist comes into play and can be extremely helpful. When I was working as a condor biologist in northern Arizona, Part of my job was to sit in a blind all day and record observations of condor behavior at a feeding station. This type of work is very similar to that of a wildlife videographer, and this made the task of coming back and capturing footage of the condors for my first film, Scavenger Hunt, a whole lot easier. I was already familiar with the behavior of the animals and could use this knowledge to maximize my chances of getting the shots that I was looking for. Similarly, while working on Bluebird Man, my collaborator Neil and I had already spent a good amount of time at our shooting locations observing bluebirds by the time we started working to capture the bluebird footage itself. The fact that we knew the location of the bluebirds' nests made predicting their movements a whole lot easier. 
we knew that as long as we remained hidden from sight, that those bluebird parents would be coming back into their nest box to care for their chicks. Our primary challenge while working on Bluebird Man was finding a way to hide from the birds so that our presence didn't affect the birds' behavior. This is a central component to capturing wildlife footage. If you're shooting footage of birds at a feeder from a window in your house, you're essentially using your house as a blind. Sometimes you can use a vehicle in a similar way. Animals are often acclimated to the presence of cars and will tolerate the presence of a vehicle, even though a human on foot would immediately scare them off. Other times, you can use existing infrastructure, lines that were set up for collecting biological data as I did with the California condors. In the case of the bluebird tover, we needed a different solution. We needed to be able to sit close to these nest boxes without disturbing the bluebird parents, and there were very few trees and shrubs to hide behind. After exploring several options, we ultimately purchased a pretty standard chair blind designed for hunting. It's basically a camouflaged cover for a standard-sized folding chair with several small openings for outside observation. We're able to get this blind set up relatively close to some of these bluebird nest boxes and observe adults coming in to feed their chicks, as well as interactions between the parents in the area without us having any obvious impact on their behavior. Of course, this did require sitting very still for hours on end inside this tiny little enclosed space. But for those of you out there who've worked field biology jobs or for those of you who are hunters, this won't be anything new. So one of the takeaway messages here is that every situation is different. Sometimes you'll be able to utilize existing structures or vehicles as a blind, and sometimes you'll have to come up with an alternate solution. Here, however, I'll bring up a completely different situation that requires thinking about wildlife footage in a different way. As many of our listeners are probably aware, here at Wild Lens, we are currently shooting for a new feature-length film called Souls of the Vermilion Sea, about the struggle to save the world's most endangered marine mammal, a small porpoise called the vaquita. So, how to go about capturing footage of an extremely elusive cetacean with fewer than 100 individuals remaining on the planet? Well, to be honest, we're still working on the answer to that one. We have yet to capture any footage of the vaquita, despite an entire week on location in the northern Gulf of California, during which this was our only goal. I can explain what our attempts have looked like thus far, however, and what we've learned along the way. I'll start this out by saying that the only high-quality video footage that exists of this species was all shot within one 20-minute time period back in 2008, at a time when the population was approximately five times greater than it is today. The Paquita porpoise is notoriously elusive and is not known to approach boats or any other type of human activity. There was one moment, however, back in 2008, when a group of lucky photographers, videographers, and scientists observed two individual animals break off from a larger group and swim towards the boat that they were on. These two vaquitas got within 15 yards of the boat before turning back around and swimming away. This is the only time that this type of behavior has ever been observed in the species. So our goal has been to recreate these circumstances and hope that we get lucky enough to see a vaquita close up, despite the fact that the population has plummeted to below 100 individuals over the past couple of years. In October, our Souls of the Vermilion Sea crew spent two full weeks on board a boat called the Maria Cleophas. Our only goal while aboard this boat was to capture footage of the vaquita. Although we knew ahead of time that this would be a very difficult task, it turned out to be uh, even more challenging than we had anticipated. First, we had to wait for ideal weather conditions. Because the vaquita is so small, and because they will only bring 
the uppermost part of their body out of the water to take a breath, it's only possible to observe them when the surface of the water is completely still, meaning there can't be any wind at all out on the Gulf. Luckily, we had a handful of days during which uh, the, the weather conditions actually were optimal like this. When the weather was just right, we would head out to an area in the northern Gulf of California with the highest known density of Vaquita. We were lucky enough to have access to this information from the remote acoustic monitoring system that is used um, to keep track of the Vaquita population. This series of C-pods, as they're known, or underwater microphones, record the high-frequency sonar clicks of the vaquita, and biologists use this data to estimate abundance. So a key lesson here would be to develop these close connections that we had with the biologists who are studying your target species, whatever it is that you're working on. These people are your greatest resource. They know the species better than you, and they can help you find these hot spots where you're most likely to see this, these animals um, so that you can get some footage. Once we arrived in one of these vaquita hotspots in optimal weather conditions, we would split up with one person, person on each corner of the boat and scan the horizon with binoculars. We spent countless hours endlessly scanning the horizon for any sign of a vaquita while the boat slowly drifted through the calm waters of the Gulf. Several times, one of us spotted what appeared to be a vaquita, although it can be hard to tell them apart from a bottlenose dolphin. Um, this is an, an extremely rare occurrence, but these sightings lasted on average three to four seconds, with the animal surfacing just two or three times before returning to the depths of the Sea of Cortez. So never was it enough time for any of us to get the vaquita into one of our camera frames and press record. We've also been exploring the idea of underwater footage of the vaquita, something which has never before been captured. We actually connected with an engineering graduate student from the University of San Diego um, who is designing an underwater camera trap with the specific goal of capturing underwater imagery of a vaquita. There is an additional challenge associated with underwater footage uh, in this case because the water in the northern Gulf of California is so cloudy with usually only about one meter of visibility. So that vaquita would have to be swimming very close to the camera trap for the system to work. This is a situation where it's totally unrealistic for us to try and go out and get underwater imagery of a vaquita independently, but we are lucky enough to find someone that is working specifically on this problem. Developing a collaborative relationship with this graduate student and getting a commitment from uh, them to share footage with us uh, was our best bet at having this type of footage uh, available for us to use in our film. So for the vaquita and for marine wildlife in general, you're not so much thinking about how to hide yourself from the animal, but simply how to get out into an area where it might be possible to observe that animal at all. Access to a boat is absolutely necessary for shooting most marine life, and this can be expensive unless you're piggyback back on an existing effort being undertaken for biological purposes. Um, luckily, this is what we were able to do on our recent shoot in the Gulf of California. The, the Maria Cleophas was uh, planning on being out in the Gulf to assist with the Vaquita survey effort already, and we were simply able to negotiate a way on board um, for our crew. Of course, these efforts to get Vaquita footage have, up until this point, been unsuccessful. But to our credit, we are attempting to get footage of one of the most elusive and rare creatures on the face of the planet. 
We haven't yet given up. Our crew for Souls of the Merlin Sea will be back out in the northern Gulf of California towards the end of this month, uh, continuing to participate in the Paquita survey effort and uh, continuing those attempts to capture um, a few frames of this very elusive porpoise. I'll make one final comment on equipment as it relates to a situation like what we're dealing with currently for the Vaquita. Obviously, having the highest quality lenses becomes even more important when you only have uh, very limited opportunities to capture footage of a species. If we get lucky and we're able to grab a few frames of a Vaquita, it could be that this is our only opportunity to do so, in which case we'd be stuck with whatever footage we got. There'd be no chance to go back out there and reshoot with better equipment. That said, the longer the lens, the more time it's actually going to take to find that Vaquita in your camera frame. And with our sightings only lasting a few seconds each, the ability to get the animal into the camera's frame fast is really crucial. We actually contemplated purchasing a Swarovski scope system for this shoot. This is a very interesting professional quality digiscoping setup that allows you to get extreme telephoto range at a fraction of the cost. For those of you who aren't familiar with digiscoping, this is the practice of holding any sort of camera up to a spotting scope and using this additional optical power to gather imagery. Swarovski has taken digiscoping to the next level with the introduction of a scope system specifically designed to integrate with a DSLR camera. Um, just Google Swarovski digiscoping reviews to f um, see how this system compares to Canon's $13,000 800mm lens system. It's not quite as sharp as that Canon lens, but it's pretty darn close and at a tiny fraction of the cost. Ultimately, I did not pull the trigger on purchasing this Swarovski system before our October shoot in Mexico, um, and it, it turned out, um, I think, to be to our benefit. Um, although this digiscoping, digiscoping setup um, would undoubtedly be beneficial for some of our Eisen Conservation film projects, um, I, I don't think that it would have helped our efforts to get Vikita footage. It, it simply would have taken too long to find that Vikita in the frame. Um, and because the species is so difficult to see, um, it's, it's almost more important just to document its continued presence in the Sea of Cortez than it is to, uh, to miss an opportunity in an attempt to get a much tighter shot on the animal. Our Souls of the Vermilion Sea crew is currently heading back down to Mexico for another shoot, and they'll be using, um, they'll be using that Canon 100 to 400 millimeter lens that, that I mentioned earlier on in the episode um, in their continued attempts to get footage of a vaquita. Of course, underlying all of this information about how to get the best wildlife footage possible on a tight budget is the issue of story development. As I've said over and over again in previous episodes of From Field Biologist to Filmmaker, having a compelling story is more important than any other factor in the documentary filmmaking process. The very first thing that you should be thinking about when planning how to get wildlife footage is how this footage will be used in your story. Many wildlife docs are told entirely by the wildlife footage itself. You see dramas playing out entirely in the animal world. For a film like this, it will be essential to think deeply about how you will get these shots and capture the animal behavior that you need to tell in your story. On the opposite end of the spectrum is uh, a documentary more like our Vaquita film, Souls of the Million Sea. Um, our story for this project is focused uh, primarily on the human effort to bring this species back from the brink, brink of extinction, with the drama playing out in the fishing communities of the northern Gulf of California and the markets of Hong Kong where illegal tatuaba swim bladders are being sold to wealthy Chinese investors. 
And you can listen to episode 26 of the podcast to get the full backstory on what I'm talking about there. So it's okay that we will have um, this very limited amount of footage of Akita to work with for this particular film. One final note on equipment considerations for shooting wildlife footage before we wrap up this discussion. We've become acclimated to seeing wildlife footage shot at high frame rates so that scenes can play out in slow motion. It used to be that you had to spend tens of thousands of dollars to buy a camera that shoots at these really high frame rates, but this is not the case anymore. The ability of a camera to shoot at high frame rates is uh, one of the most important considerations when looking at which camera body to buy or to use um, for uh, shooting wildlife specifically. A few years back, Sony released its FS700 camera body with a $4,000 price tag for just the body. Um, and the ability to shoot 240 frames per second at full 1080p. Um, this really did change the landscape of possibilities for, for wildlife shooting um, quite dram- dramatically. I've had numerous conversations with uh, professional wildlife videographers who, who cite the release of this particular camera body as, as a turning point. Um, although $4,000 is still quite a lot for most people, it's a far cry from the 20 to 30 k you would have had to spend to get this feature previously. The next major development in high frame rate videography came with the release of the iPhone 6. Um, the iPhone 5S was released with the capability to shoot 140 frames per, se- per second, and the iPhone 6 now has the ability to shoot 240 frames per second. Um, I have several colleagues here in Boise who have been shooting wildlife uh, with an iPhone 6 digiscoping setup um, with really spectacular results. So if you have the newest iPhone and a decent scope, you're in pretty good shape to start capturing really stunning wildlife footage. As with all things related to the technology of video equipment, developments are moving so rapidly that it's difficult for anybody to keep up. I'm sure that within the next year or two, we'll have lots more cameras capable of capturing very high frame rate footage. One thing to be thankful for, however, is that the technology associated with camera lenses is a whole lot more stable. If you buy a really nice camera lens, it's not going to be outdated in two years or even in 10 years, unlike camera bodies, which very rapidly become irrelevant. So if you have money to invest in camera equipment, lenses are probably your best bet. Well, that's about all I have to share on the topic of capturing wildlife footage at the moment. I'm sure we'll have updates on this topic in the not-too-distant future as we continue gaining experience shooting for our Vikita film and others, and as camera technology continues to progress at a rapid pace. As usual, you can find more information on this topic over on the show notes page for this episode. Um, I'll also include links to all of the equipment that I discussed here, as well as relevant from film projects that I mentioned. Uh, those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC45. This episode is produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Human Wolves. <laughs>